So chapter 10, verse 1. Adonai is Zedek. Adonai means Lord, and Zedek is righteousness. So this is the Lord of righteousness. And there's a little bit... Of, now, this isn't his name. This is a title. This is a title, like Pharaoh, King, Caesar, that kind of a thing. But the irony here is, this is a Canaanite king, and his name is Lord of Righteousness. Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. Now this is, Jerusalem is new here. We saw Salem in the Torah. And Salem means peace, from Shalom. And now Jerusalem, Yeru is city, so this is a city of peace. So the Salem that we read about in earlier passages in the Bible is the same thing as Jerusalem. So somewhere during the time that the Israel was in slavery in Egypt, it became not just peace, but the city of peace. Salem is the city that Melchizedek was from. So we've come a long way since Melchizedek. Melchizedek was, now here's what's interesting. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he was a high priest over the city of peace. And he was a godly man that even Abraham paid the tithe to. And he blessed Abraham. And the author of Hebrews shows that as godly as Abraham was, Melchizedek was more righteous and more godly than Abraham. And now, all these years later, we're at the same city, and we have Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness, in the city of peace, and it is so far away from Melchizedek. And this is one of the narrator's way of showing, see, the Canaanites have become so evil that the godliness, even the little bit of godliness that was there is now completely gone. It's completely gone. He'd heard about the capture of Ai and annihilated and its king as he did to Jericho and its kings. And he also heard how the people of Gibeon made a peace treaty with Israel and lived among them. And all Jerusalem was terrified because of Gibeon was a large city like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai and all of its men were warriors. So King Adonai Zedek of Jerusalem sent his, this message to King Hoham of Hebron. So Hebron is more up in this region. King Piram of Jarmuth, and King Japhai of Lachish, and King Debir of Eglon. Come to my aid so we can attack Gibeon. For it has made a peace treaty with Joshua and the Israelites. So the five Amorite kings, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron and Jarmuth and Lachish and Eglon, and all their troops gathered together and advanced. And they deployed their troops and fought against Gibeon. They got to Gibeon. Probably because they're angry that they got a treaty and they didn't. And two, they're attacking Gibeon, who are now servants to Israel, which means they're weak. And now Israel's got to defend them, which is going to make it harder for Israel to attack and defeat them. So they're attacking the weakness of Israel now. So Gibeon has now become a weakness to Israel, a threat. But here's what's also interesting. The first question you should be asking is, is the Israelites actually going to honor the treaty? If they're truly under the treaty, it's not just keeping alive, but they have to come to their defense. Yes, they've screwed up majorly, but are they really going to stick to the biblical definition of a treaty and still come to these people's defense? And of course, the answer is yes. Then men of Gibeah, verse 6, sent this message to Joshua at the camp of Gilgah. Do not abandon your subjects. Rescue us. Help us. For all the Amorite kings living in the hill country are attacking us. You should have rethought that deception, Gibeon. 
So Joshua and his whole army, including the bravest warriors, marched up from Gilgah. Yahweh told Joshua, Don't be afraid of them, for I am handing them over to you. Not one of them can resist you. So God is backing this treaty. Joshua is honoring this treaty. And God's promising victory. And this is the first alliance they've ever gone up against. Joshua attacked them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgah. And Yahweh routed them before Israel. Now notice it says Joshua attacked, but who routed them? Yahweh. And you're going to see that over and over again in the Bible. God does the routing. Israel thoroughly defeated them at Gibeon. They chased them up the road to the pass of Beth Horon and struck them down all the way to Ezekah and Malachah. And as they fled from Israel to the slope leading down for Beth Horon, Yahweh threw down on them large hailstones from the sky all the way to Ezekah, and they died in the fact, and died. In fact, more died from the hailstones than the Israelites killed with a sword. So God joins. Now, this, this is where you see the partnership. See, with, with Jericho, it was all God destroying the city. And now we see a partnership. Joshua and his soldiers are running in. They're killing people and attacking. And at the same time, giant hailstones are coming out of the sky, landing down the people. And God's angelic army and Israel are fighting side by side against the enemy. This is what God intended for us. You're seeing a glimpse of what the image of God looks like. Adam and Eve should have joined God in going against the serpent in the garden. This is a picture of what God kind of meant, the image of God. This is what we're to look for. This is what we should expect in our life. This is what we should see on a much larger scale the day that Christ comes back and brings the kingdom of God. There's a side-by-side. I mean, one of the perfect... I mean, C.S. Lewis got it. I mean, there's a lot of things I don't agree with, but he got it on a big-picture level. When Aslan and all the descendants of Adam, Lucy and Edmund and Peter and... Um, Susan, they're all going side by side in the battlefield. Aslan's not sitting back there and just telling what to do. He's not at home saying, go, I'll be with you. They're not just, it's side by side. It's not all just Aslan. They're just sitting there like, oh, all we need is Aslan. It's side by side. And you see them joining in. And God's raining down these hailstones. And here's the important comment. This is the most important comment. It's not the action. It's not the... Wow, that's so cool. I would love to see the hailstones as much as you might want to see it. <laughs> the, the most amazing comment is the hailstones kill more people than the sword. And you're going to see that a lot. The reality is God is still mostly doing it. And here's what you need to think. God asking you to join him does not demean his power and sovereignty. The fact that God can allow you to join him and still accomplish it actually elevates his power and sovereignty. And so they defeated them. The alliance. Verse 12. The day that Yahweh delivered the Amorites over the Israelites, Joshua prayed to Yahweh before Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. The sun stood still and the moon stood motionless while the nation took vengeance on its enemies. The event is recorded in the scroll of the upright one. The sun stood motionless in the middle of the sky and did not set for about a full day. There was not been a day like it before or since then that Yahweh obeyed a man 
For Yahweh fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all of Israel returned to the camp of Gilgah. Joshua commanded the sun and the moon to stand still, and it did. But I think we've seriously misunderstood this passage. Read it again. See if you noticed it. What is the narrator wowed by? What is the narrator wowed by? The Lord obeyed a man. The word listen, whatever word your Hebrew, your Bible has chosen, it actually comes from a Hebrew word that actually communicates more the idea of obey. This is not my word. This is God's word. I'm not trying to say that God was like, oh, I have to obey you. That's not the picture. There's only one other time that that is ever used ever in the Bible. And it's in Kings when Elijah says, will you let this little boy die? God heal him and raise him from the dead. And it says God obeyed Elijah. There's only two times in the entire Bible that God has ever done what a human said. Not because he had to, but because there was something so righteous about the way that that person asked it that God did it. And the narrator, you would expect the narrator to say, oh my, I mean, look, if there's one thing that is the most faithful thing in nature, it's the rising and the setting of the sun. Never has there ever been a time in the history of mankind that the sun has ever stopped moving. Well, technically, us, but you know what I mean. (laughs) In a metaphorical figure of speech kind of sense. That has never happened. And you would think that a narrator would say, oh my goodness, the sun sets still, especially in the ancient world. You would think that would be even more, I mean, eclipses are way more amazing to them than they are to us today. And yet that's not what the narrator focuses on. He's not wowed by the sun, which means two things are happening. You should realize that what's really the bigger deal is that God listened to a human. What's way bigger of a deal than the entire cosmos sitting still for a day is God listening to a human. And the second thing that clues you in is maybe this actually didn't stand still because the narrator doesn't say anything about that actually being the amazing part. So what do we do with this? The first view that a lot of people have on this is the sun, the earth's rotation literally stopped or tilted in such a way that the day lasted much longer. The sun literally did stop. Either it tilted the earth, tilted in such a way that it allowed the sun to be there longer, or the earth stopped actually rotating. You're like, what about centrifugal force and gravity and all that kind of stuff? Oh, it's because God, he was holding you there. Okay, which is totally possible. But the problem is, This would be recorded in every single culture. In every single culture in the entire world, they worship the sun as one of the most powerful gods ever. In fact, one of the reasons the sun is seen as the most powerful god ever is because it is the most faithful thing in all of nature. Storms come, sometimes they don't. Crops come, sometimes they don't. Flooding happens, sometimes it doesn't. Animals live, sometimes they don't. But there's one thing in all of nature that is consistently faithful every single day. It's the rising and setting of the sun. It's the only thing in nature that's absolutely faithful. The only thing in nature that provides all source of life. Light. 
I mean, you can't have anything without the light. And it was worship as a God. And if that thing set still or change for a day, then every single culture would have recorded this thing. And the fact that not one culture has any record of it is really suspect. A few cultures not getting lost throughout history, that's one thing. But in the entire planet of Aztecs, Mayans, Africans, Chinese, Japanese, okay, Europe, Greece, Rome, nobody has one record of this. So that kind of throws suspect. Now, some people try to find and stuff, but it's really, really, really loose. Likewise, the fact that the narrator states that the sun was over Gibeon in the east and the moon over the Ajalon, meaning that one was way over here and the moon was over there, means it was already the beginning of the day. Which means, why would you need the sun to sit still to make the day last longer when it's already the beginning of the day? So that means the day would have to be actually like twice as long. So th- this, this has been rejected by a lot of people. This tends to be the most popular view that everyday normal people have because it's the most literal reading of it. But it doesn't really truly work. The second view is that Yahweh performed a local mir- miracle providing additional light for Israel. So nothing changed on a cosmic level, but God just kind of like made more light come in. Like he refracted or reflected the light to just kind of angle over the horizon, just bend that light a little bit more so it would happen. The problem is that's not what it says. It doesn't say God made the light travel further or the light wrap around the earth. It says the sun stood still. So it violates the language. The third view is that Yahweh made the sun and the moon eclipse each other in a way that would impress the Amorites of his power. They were both visible at the same day. So they take this word, this Hebrew word, um, damam, in Joshua, and they translate it to be dark instead of to cease. So your Bible say it ceased or it stopped in the day, in the sky. Well, they say, well, there's like two places in the entire Bible where it could be maybe dark, So we'll just take it dark. The problem is that's not a good translation. That's rejected by pretty much everybody. And the fact that none of your translations have the word dark there. Also, the Amorites could have seen this as a good omen. Eclipses were often seen as good omens, not bad things. I know a lot of times we see the atheists have made the people in the ancient world look like idiots by thinking that anything that happened naturally was actually filled them with fear all the time. They worship the planets. and the stars. They would have seen this as a good omen. The sun and the moon coming together and overlapping, two gods coming side by side, standing before you so you can see them, would have not been seen as a bad thing. So they could have easily misinterpreted this as favoring them. The reality of the fourth view, and this is the view, is the idea is that the word cease can also be translated to be quiet. In fact, most of the time in the Bible it's translated to be quiet. And it may not be that Joshua's commanding the sun and the moon to be still and to cease, but he's telling the sun and the moon to be quiet and stand in awe. And the reality is, it actually may not be Joshua. The Hebrew is actually very difficult here, and it actually doesn't say that Joshua commanded the sun and the moon to stand still. What it actually says is that Joshua prayed to Yahweh, and it gives more of a hint that he's praying for some kind of a, a miracle that God will aid him in some kind of a way and God is honoring him by giving him the victory that he, he wanted. 
and that God is commanding the sun and the moon to be quiet and stand in awe. Now, here's, and I know this might be hard for us because we think so literally, but if you look up passages like Exodus 15.1, right after they came out of, now notice, okay, first of all, do you notice in your Bibles that these phrases here are indented? Has anybody ever noticed those indentings in the Bible? What does it communicate? Poetry. So right here, every translator recognizes this is poetic. Now go to Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. In Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, Moses writes a poetic song celebrating God's victory over the Egyptian. And he says things like this. Exodus 15, a. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood upright like a heap, and the deep waters were solidified in the heart of the sea. Did God literally blow his nostrils and make the sea part? No, it's metaphorical language. And so if you look up Habakkuk 3, 11, the sun and the moon stand still in their course. The flash of your arrows drive them away. The bright light of your lightning quick spear. It says right there, that when God comes and defeats the Babylonians, he's going to make the sun stand still. Why don't we ever talk about that? Was there ever, why don't we ever be like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Let's find the second time in human history that the sun stood still. That means there should be another day. In fact, there's another passage of the Bible that talks about the sun standing still again, which means there's three times in human history. And there might even be more, but yet we don't have the three long days. The reality is the same word that is used there in the back of 3.11, stands still, can also be translated quiet. And it's poetic language where God says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Are the heavens and the mountains literally singing praises of God? I'll make the rocks cry out. And this is, language, this is poetic language saying, oh, creation, pay attention. It's, it's what's called personification. When you make inanimate objects and you give them physical human characteristics or emotions. And you see this all throughout scripture. The Psalms talk about I, um, the, the, the rocks came up and rose up and tried to take me down. And, and they, the enemy devour, devours me like roaring lions. That's not, this is all poetic language. And it is more of probably, they're saying, all of creation, stand still, be quiet, be amazed, because this is the day that God actually listened to a man. It's such a big deal that God is telling all of creation to pay attention, because nothing has ever happened like this in the history of mankind. It may be literal, but most likely, the fact that we come to all of these prophets and all the Psalms and we never take them literally, yet we come here and all of a sudden we do take it literally, yet it's clearly poetic, means that we probably should see it more as a poetic explanation to the creation to pay attention. If you truly had the sun physically standing still, it's going to rob you and distract you from the amazingness of God listening to a man which it has, right? When was the last time you were taught in Sunday school class how amazing it is that God actually listened to a human? <coughs> what you're told is how amazing it was that the sun stood still. 
And what the narrator is telling you is, I, the, div- the one who's inspired by God, is telling you is absolutely amazing that God listened to a human. And if at the same time God literally had made the sun stand still, God knows us well enough that that would have completely wowed us more than God listening to a human. And we have been completely distracted from the real point that's being made just like we have been. And most likely, this is very poetic language, just like everywhere else in the Bible, creation declares the glory. Stand up and pay attention, all of creation. Okay? The stars sing for the glory of God. Over and over again, you see this language of creation. Pay attention to what God is doing. Stand still and be awed. Praise God. But we never ever think the stars are literally singing like the hallelujah chorus for God. And we don't take Habakkuk as the sun literally standing still. And if we're not going to take it literally there, we can't take it literally here. And the real point is that God listened to a man. And never has it ever happened before in the light since the time of the narrator until Elijah comes along. And it happens again. And so you can see on page 29 of my notes... You could probably, most, uh, no, a lot of translators think that more verses should be in that poetic structure. And I have a, a thing here of more authors seeing it that way. And so the reality is, this is what's amazing. God listened to a human. Now what makes this even more amazing is that Joshua has failed so many times. He has not gone to God He's put a bunch of Canaanites in a place that they shouldn't be. And all these consequences are going to ripple throughout all of human history. And God could easily say, you have jacked up everything, Joshua. I'm done with you. Yet in the end, God ends up listening to Joshua and doing what he said. Because God wants to show that despite that, Joshua is still a man who loves God and seeks him out, and God is still going to honor that. Just like Moses screwed up tremendously and was kicked out of the promised land, God could easily say, I'm done with you. But he still allows him to write the book of Deuteronomy and give speeches to Israel. Just like David is going to murder a man and rape a woman, and God could say, I'm done with you. But he allows him to continue to be a king, and he honors the Davidic covenant with him. Just like Elijah says, I quit, and I'm done, God. And God says, oh, just do this one last thing. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go do what I want to do. And Elijah completely quits and tells God, I'm not obeying you anymore. He never does. And yet God lifts Elijah up to the seat of honor in the prophets, and he ends up standing next to Jesus in the transfiguration. And what you see is, in some sense, God is making it very clear to you, here's a godly people, godly man and godly woman. This is what it means to be the image of God. Emulate this. But at the same time, he allows them to fail miserably, and he's constantly showing you, but ultimately in the end, don't trust them. Don't put your faith in them. They're not going to bring the utopian society that you want. You need something more. That's not your savior. But at the same time, he turns around after their sin and honors them and elevates them up to show them. But in the end, they lived by faith. And I'm going to honor them for that. Because if it was obedience that got you into heaven, we're all screwed. But in the end, no matter how much they messed up, no matter how many times that Moses got angry and he failed to talk to God about the Gibeonites, or the 
Gad and them, no matter how, David does all his job, cutting people's heads off, carrying his trophies for 40 years, killing people, murdering, extorting people, running a gang for a while. I mean, you know, and Elijah's like saying, forget you, God, I quit. I'm not going to do anything you want me to do anymore. You've got all these people doing these horrible things, and in the end, God honors them and lifts them up. What do you do with a God like that? This is, and the reality is, you shouldn't be honoring humans as amazing people and putting their names on banners and memorials and that kind of stuff. The reality is what's really, truly amazing is that God actually deals with us in this way. That God chooses to use them as a great example of faith when they're mucking it up over here. And even after they muck it all up, he still lifts them up and says, look, I'm going to still honor them. Let God honor them. And you be wowed by the fact that God is actually doing this with them. And what it's doing is God is showing you this is sin. And I will not tolerate sin. And the only way you can be right with God is if you're righteous. That is very black and white. It's called wisdom literature. But then he also gives you these stories of morally corrupt people who fail, but yet at the same time they love God and they're doing their best and they're trying to show faith and they're trying to trust him and they're screwing up, but at the same time they're trusting and they're screwing up and God is graciously guiding them, using them, and honoring and lifting them up and bringing them the kingdom of God. Because ultimately, God looks at the heart. And this is what the narrator is trying to get you to see. We have just seen Joshua screw up over and over and over again with long-term consequences that are yet to come. And the narrator is like, wow, God listened to that screwed up Joshua. And you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And if there's ever a time that you think God is done with you or God can't use you or God can't forgive that or, or you'll never change or... You have something more than Joshua has. You actually have the Holy Spirit living in you, partnering with you more than he ever did with Joshua. And we need to see ourselves the way that God sees us. We need to look at the sin, we need to hate it, and we need to eradicate it, and we need to bury it and pile the stones on it. But at the same time, we also need to understand God will keep using you. As long as you're constantly pursuing him, repenting, seeking favor, God will keep using you. And in fact, later when we get to Samuel, we're going to learn about the divine counsel, where he's actually going to lift some people up and actually seek their advice out. And we saw that with Abraham, remember? Abraham's lying about his wife. (laughs) He's like trying to make treaties with other people too that he's not supposed to. He's got multiple wives. He got a son in an illegitimate way without trusting God. And God comes to him and says, hey, what do you think we should do with Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham says, well, I think you should. And God says, okay. What do you do with a God like that? A God who does not need Abraham's advice. A God who's very capable of making these decisions on his own. And at any time would totally supersede him if Abraham was totally off track. But yet says, Abram, your heart is good enough that I actually want you to join me in the decision making. And if you align with me, I'll go with that. This is an amazing God. God wants to partner with you. He wants to join you. He wants you to join him. 
And as long as you hate the sin like he does and repent quickly and pursue him and do the best you can to trust him, he will do amazing things and use you in amazing ways when you think there's no way he would ever truly be able to handle someone like me anymore. And I know so many people who live constantly with the, but I've done too much. And, okay, I know God loves me and I'll get into the kingdom of God one day, but he'll never use me in ministry anymore because I've completely disqualified myself. Well, maybe you've been disqualified from certain ministries, but never from everything that God can possibly do. And we need these stories, and we need to stop lifting these men and women up on these high pedestals where we feel like, oh, I can never be like them, and see them for the flawed, horrible people that they are, but have a heart that seeks God, and really pay attention to how God is dealing with them, because nobody can live up to the pedestal that we've put David and Paul on and Moses on. But when you see their example and try to live up to that, but at the same time realize they have seriously screwed up. I don't know about you, but I've never like cut the head off of somebody and carried it as a trophy. I've never murdered anybody. I've never raped a woman. I've never killed a whole bunch of other people in the army to try to cover it up. I never started a gang and went out and extorted people like for money like Al Capone. And yet God is still saying that king wasn't righteous like David was. David is a man after my own heart. You're like, what? Seriously, God? Did you not read the same story I did? And we'll talk about that when we get to Samuel. And you're like, that's what you need to pay attention. Don't put David on the pedestal. Allow him to be exactly where he's supposed to be. And you will see God's character a lot more clearly when you stop putting these people on pedestals. And you, you, you emulate what they did well, and you see how they sin, and you see how God still uses them, and you say, oh, creation, stand in awe that of all the things that God has created and how all of creation obeys God all the time, that God actually deals with us in this way. And that's Psalm 8. Who is man? Of all the things that you created, all the wonders of the universe, who is man that you have lifted us up higher than the angels? The angels are not sinful. They're obeying God. They're in heaven. They know things about God that we can't even begin to imagine. They, were, they help God run the universe. They fight in his armies. And he says, of all the wondrous things in creation, who is man that you consider us greater than the angels and greater than anything in creation, that you lifted us up to such a status as the image of God? That's what creation is to be wowed by. Does that make sense? I may be totally wrong, and the sun really did stand still, but I think that loses the whole context of the Bible and the whole power of what the narrator is saying Wow, God listened to a man, that flawed man, who really didn't do that many good things in the last three chapters. And that's the thing. Sometimes God does literally do things in creation, but at the same time, we now need to let the text say what it's saying. That is a natural reading, but that's a natural reading for literal, scientific, objective, Western, modern-day Americans. But that's not exactly how an Easterner would read things. So verse 16. They're battling these Amorite kings, and Joshua has defeated them. 
And it says, The five Amorite kings ran away and hid in the cave of Makadah. And Joshua was told, The five kings have been found hiding in the cave of Makadah. And Joshua said, Roll large stones over the mouth of the cave and post guards in front of it. But don't you delay. Chase your enemies and catch them. Don't allow them to retreat to their cities, for Yahweh your God is handing them over to you. So these five kings abandon their men and hide in caves. And Joshua says, okay, we'll just seal it up and let them starve to death, basically. And which that's not what's going to happen, but that's kind of the idea. And then they go after the other, the other men that are all running away. And so they're chasing them down. Now notice he says, because Yahweh, your God, is handing them over to you. He's giving Yahweh the glory. Joshua and the Israelites almost totally wiped them out, but some survivors did escape to the fortified cities. Then the whole army safely returned to Joshua at the camp in Makadah, and no one dared threaten the Israelites. So Joshua said, Open the cave's mouth and bring the five kings out to, to of the cave to me. They did as ordered, and they brought the five kings out of the cave to him, and the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmoth, and Lachish, and Eglon, and there they brought the kings out to Joshua. He summoned all the men of Israel and said to the commanders of the troops who accomplished, accompanied him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of those kings. So they came up to put their feet on the necks. And then Joshua said to them, Don't be afraid and don't panic. Be strong and brave, for Yahweh will do the same thing to all your enemies that you fight. He has them put all their feet on their necks. Now, in the ancient world, that was a symbolic image of conquering somebody. It's kind of like in the WWF opera wrestling, that where they like put them down on the ground and put their knee on them, or, some, or even in regular wrestling. Or when you go to the moon and you put the flag in it, you say, Hoo-ah, we own the moon. It's your way of saying that I've dominating you, I've controlled you. And that's not an uncommon thing. What's interesting is when you get to Psalm 110, which is about Jesus, which they had no idea was about Jesus at the moment, but Jesus in the Gospels actually uses Psalm 110 to prove that he is God to the disciples. And Psalm 110 says, You are a priest in the order of Melchizedek, you are my king, and Yahweh will make your enemies your footstool. Now, when I was growing up as a kid, I always thought that meant, like, they can just humiliate the enemies and they're going to sit on a chair and just, like, put their feet on these guys <laughs> on their hands and knees and with their backs. But then I got older and realized, oh, it means, like, stepping on their heads and necks and that kind of stuff. But that's what God promises to, to Jesus, that all of his enemies will be made a footstool to him. And so that imagery is graphically demonstrated here that Joshua has had a total defeat over the enemy. Then Joshua executed them and hung them on five trees. And they were left hanging on the trees until evening. And at sunset, Joshua ordered his men to take them down from the trees. And they threw them into the cave where they had hidden and piled large stones over the mouth of the cave. To this day they remain. Now once again, we see that idea of executing them, hanging them up. But in obedience to the law, they're taking them off before sunset so that the bodies are not disgraced. They're not mutilated. They're not rotting because they're still made in the image of God. And the body is still valued by Yahweh even though they've sinned and they need to be executed. So then they bury them and they pile rocks on them, which we've seen over and over before as well. This is the end of this central campaign. So Joshua has basically successfully conquered everything in the center. Everything around the top of the Dead Sea 
all the way up to Shechem up here. And so he now controls all the major cities. Now we're going to learn later, he hasn't defeated every city and killed every person in the land because God only wants him to go after the big ones, the forts, the cities, the ones that control everything. And the idea is once you cut the heads off of all these major cities, then the everyday normal people will just fall pretty easily. And so this isn't a massive just clean house campaign that is being saved for the book of Judges, according to God later. The problem is the book of Judges won't do it. Right now we're just going for the heads of all these kingdoms. He has successfully defeated him. 